You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you something, people. Today, my guest is a Mets fan. And the weird thing is, I'm a huge Phillies fan, but I've never hated the Mets. The Braves, hate them. The Nationals, don't worry about them because they always get the playoffs and don't do crap. But the Mets, I maybe it's because I have a... As a kid, I watched Tom Seaver, or you know, as I got older, I watched Dwight Gooden, or maybe it's from the Seinfeld episode, the spinning episode that Keith Hernandez was on, because in that game, the Phillies were playing the Mets. But a few years ago, when the Mets were on the World Series, and they were playing the Royals, I put on Facebook, and I was living in L.A. at the time, I put on Facebook that I wanted to see the Mets win. And my friends from Philadelphia went off on me. They called me a little bitch. They called me soft. And the best is they said I should lose my Phillies card. And, you know, I'm 55 years old. I've been a fan since I was four years old. And I had no idea what they were talking about. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a Mets fan who I know I see him, his displeasure on Facebook. He's also a seven-time Grammy winner. And my guest is Steve Thompson. How you doing, Steve? Great, Steve. All right, don't bring up the Mets. I mean, I've been a fan since 62 because I lived... Not too far from Shea Stadium. I actually grew up around the block from Donald Trump, so I know the, the Trumps very well. And um, it's my displeasure that our management team is so dysfunctional because I feel we have a good team. I just think they're being coached improperly. It drives me nuts to see what goes on. I met Joe Wilpon, the owner of the Mets, a couple of years ago. I was working a lot in Vegas. And I went to the Vegas 51s when they had people like Noah Syndergaard and Stephen Matz, all these people in there, and Wally Backman was the manager. And I absolutely love Wally because I was at the 86 World Series game when um, the Mookie Wilson-Buckner uh, play happened. And I used to hang out with a lot of the Mets players, so there's a lot of history there. But, you know, it's interesting. Being in music, Sports people want to be me, and me want to be sports people. You know what I mean? Right. It, it seems like to go back and forth. So, you know, uh, one of my outlets is I love sports. I'm a Mets, Jets, Islanders, Knicks fan, so I've been a perennial loser for a while now. <laughs> but, but I don't, I'm not a fan weather fan. Everybody says, well, go to the Yankees. I said, why? Because they win? I, I just can't do that. And again, if you saw my sports memorabilia, it's probably valued over a million dollars. I mean, I have every baseball card set made from 1960 to present. I have an unbelievable ball collection that can go from Joe DiMaggio to everybody. Uh, Mickey Mantle and things like that, a Michael Jordan signed ball. And uh, I probably value my golf trophies more than I do my platinum records. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny, you know, you talk about being a fan, and me, you know, Philadelphia being a lifelong Eagles fan, when I was in L.A., I would have to go out to watch the games. I would go to a bar down the street. I lived in Burbank, and I would always get abused. You know, I would get hear crap from Cowboys fans, Redskins fans, and then I finally moved back east, and they, they win that year, and it was a great thing. I mean, winning the Super Bowl, I had tears in my eyes, you know, it was, it was wonderful, but in a little part of me was wishing I could have been still in L.A., so I just could have given everybody the finger that yelled at me over all those years. Well, I have to say, L.A. fans are just, they're, they're wusses. I hate to say it, but, you know, <laughs> they don't stay for the whole game. I've been to Dodger Stadium many times. I think the Rams have a great team. 
I think they're really good. Uh, the Raiders, I mean, I'm a John Gruden fan, but I, I'm, I'm waiting to see what he actually does. But I'll tell you the truth, I'm really excited about my Jets this year. We finally have a real coach, and we have some really good players, and we actually have a decent quarterback. So um, I, I'm actually looking forward to it. I remember, you know, I had I used to have the Jets players over my house when I lived in Long Island, and I'd have a catered event, they come over and things like that. They always invited me to the game. I said, listen, dude, I have a big, big screen TV. It takes me an hour and a half to drive to the game. Why do I want to go there when I can have all my friends over and we can enjoy the game? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, well, you said you grew up around the corner from uh, Shea. And now, at what interest, you're a big sports fan, but what interest, I mean, at what age did you start getting interested in music? Oh, ever since I, uh, probably about eight years old, I mean, always loved music, and um, when it came to high school, I was uh, designated the, the person that would bring in the music for the senior lounge. <laughs> when I got out of high school, I did various jobs and worked in Sam Goody's record store. Excuse me, I have a bad allergy. <laughs> Sorry. I worked at Sam Goody's record store, and I was a, a shit guitar player growing up. I always wanted to be uh, between a Mick Ronson and a Jeff Beck guy. I was in a band called Civil World, and yeah, you know, we played like you know glam music because this was the '70s. You know, we were into the Bowie, Mott the Hoople, um, New York Dolls, T Rex type of vibe, and um, did I know I was going to get into music? I have to say one thing. When I saw David Bowie play the Ziggy Stardust Show Radio City Musical in um, probably early 70s, it blew me away. And again, I went to the original Woodstock, even though I was a little baby. I went saw Jimi Hendrix live. I've seen every band live. But when I saw that Bowie Ziggy Stardust Show, it absolutely blew my mind. And that actually got me into classical music because uh, they would play music from 2001, um, uh, I think it was Walter Carlos who had switched on Bach or whatever. So I got into that, and I followed Bowie's career in the 70s. I went to every one of his shows. I wound up becoming a disc jockey at New York nightclubs because I had a great record collection. And uh, how I got into actually working in the industry, I remember um, a friend of mine, Ron Radom, who owned a club in Long Island called Barrymore's, I, I would do uh, my nights there, and at the end of the night, he would listen to the tapes I made the night, and he was, like, such a big fan, and we lost touch. I remember doing a record called Disco Hustle in 77, where I put the best of dance music on vinyl with Adamate Roulette, from Donna Summers to whatever, and it sold 12 million copies. I got a $250 check with no credit. I'll never forget that. And Ron pitched me to uh, Henry Stone from TK Records to do this dance music. So I think the first artist I worked with them when I was so green in the studio is working in artist called Sully B. So I wound up doing dance remixes in the late 70s and early 80s, and it, it, it took on. And then, um, you know, Disco Dead crap happened probably early 80s. Got out of that, went to full-time DJing again. Then I got back into doing R&B music for 
Mercury, like Stephanie Mills, Barquez, uh, and, and all those bands, got back into it. And then when so-called New Wave hit, I, I got the call to do uh, Talk Talk Gets My Life and started doing David Bowie, Ultravox, Psychedelic Furs, I mean, Missing Persons. And I started doing all these records. Then I went back to pop music where I started working with artists like Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, Earth, Wind and Fire, also the Tears for Fear shout. So I started doing all that and I got bored. I said, all my records hit number one. I mean, that sounds weird, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's, it's one of those things though, you're, it's something that you know you're really good at it. I mean, it's, it's a track record. So I think a lot of times if we know we're really good at something, we want to find something else. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a person that had multi-taste. When I grew up in school, I hung out with this girl, Dottie West, who was probably a 400-pound black woman. And this was in, in Jamaica, Queens, okay? And she would go around to the school, and again, you have to understand the culture at that time. You didn't say boo in school. And she would uh, take a little portable record player and bang James Brown and walk into classrooms, and the teachers wouldn't say anything. So she turned me on to James Brown, Miles Davis, this and that. So I got into that whole side of music. In the 70s, I was into like Marvin Gaye, Al Green, Stevie Wonder, Motown, Philly International. So I grew up on that side. But the other side, I was into Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Bowie. So I was all over the place because I loved all the music. You know, I just like music that resonated to me. And I, I, I really feel that helped me in music. And when I was doing dance music, the great thing about that was <clears throat> there were no rules and arrangers. So I remember working on a, a song by Madonna called Open Your Heart. I remember, uh, uh, who was it, uh, from Geffen who called me up. Or Geffen, uh, oh, God. Michael Austin, which is Mo Austin's son, wanted me to do a remix on, on Open Your Heart. He said, Steve, we know this album's probably dead. We want to give one more, one more shot. Would you work on the song Open Your Heart? And at the time, I said, I would love to. So I think I took that song, made it 10 minutes and 25 seconds long and not be boring. And the reason why I made it that long is I wanted to give a DJ a bathroom record, meaning you could you could feel free to put this record on. It wouldn't lose interest. You can go to the bathroom and do your thing and come back and you'll be fine. And... The song went number one, and so I was doing that, and then working with Whitney Houston, I want to dance with somebody, and I love working with Whitney. And I got a point to my crest, I need to do something different, so I remember my manager calling up Tom Zutat, asking Tom to give me some Rebankle City Kid, which was called, it was wound up being called Tesla, and Guns N' Roses. So I jumped at the chance of working with them. Then after that, everybody said, okay, Steve's the rock guy. So I wound up doing, you know, bands like Soundgarden, Anthrax, uh, uh, Metallica, everything down the thing. But I said, you know, that's just not me. I like diversity. You know, I worked with Alice Cooper, Cinderella, Dawkins, the whole gamut. And I remember at the end of the 80s, I was getting bored. I was getting calls from bands like Poison Warren and no disrespect to them. They're great at what they do. It's just not my thing. And I called my manager up. I said, this is all I'm getting offered. I'm out of here. And then I got a call from Steve Roboski, who is uh, the A&R guy from a and says, hey, I just signed this exciting band called Soundgarden. 
and I listened to them and it just blew me away. So I got to work on Soundgarden's first album. Then the 90s came. Alternative was big because of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, everything like that. So I look at a guy like Steve Thompson, okay, he's an 80s guy, what does he know about this? So I decided to pick an artist that was so obscure that I could make noise with him. It was called Butthole Surfers. Oh, yeah. So I, yeah, so I wound up doing the Butthole Surfers uh, Electric Larry Land album. I co-wrote the song Pepper because when I heard the demos, they were missing something. So I wound up uh, writing the song Pepper with the Butthole Surfers. It wound up becoming... Alternative song of the year, the number one alternative band of the year, and I just basically gave a big fuck you to music issues. Never try to pigeonhole me, because that's not what I'm all about. Well, I was... I'm all about making music today and tomorrow. I'm not about looking in the past. Because, well, you know, today I'm still 16. Today I'm still growing, and I feel like I'm a new kid on the block. Well, you know, and, it's um, I'm real quick, it's amazing is when you say that, it's, it's quite obvious. Like, when you go to your website, which people, it's... Uh, it's stevethompsonproductions.com. When you go to your website and when you click on your discography, it has to go to a whole second page because there's like nine pages. I mean, it's longer than, you know, most, you know, introductions to a novel. And if you just go through your A's, I mean, you look, you know, I, I was looking at your A's and just, aha, Alice Cooper, Alphaville, the guys from Yes, you know, Anderson, Wakeman, Hal, Animotion, Anthrax, Apollonia, Aretha Franklin. It's everywhere. And that's what's cool. I mean, you're hitting so many different areas and the best part is they're all kick-ass artists yeah well it's interesting uh, you know clive davis was a major mentor of mine and uh we worked very closely together i think with clive liked me i didn't give him any bullshit i told him exactly how it felt i remember we had a meeting one day in his office and um you know everything was hidden with me the, you know i worked with a rethrow on probably about six different songs from uh, I knew you were waiting, which won a Grammy with him, her, and George Michael. And I mean, obviously, I'm a big Aretha Franklin fan, and Nora Michael Walden wound up doing the productions on that was this amazing genius. And um, I remember him playing an artist, and you have to understand the whole scenario of Clive's meetings. He'd have his whole staff in there, they all have their pad and pencil ready, and he would play everything on 11. And the problem is, he played cassettes. And when he would rewind something, the heads would hit uh, over the, over the sound. And when he rewind stuff, it was just over the top loud. So he was really excited about this artist, and you know, and he did the playback, and everybody's clapping, and I just were like shaking my head. So Clive immediately goes to me. He says, "Do you like her?" I said, "The only way this girl would ever have a chance." of even getting close with it if she was on Grease 3 because it was pitiful. And everybody's mouths dropped because I would say like I felt. <laughs> and I found out a week later that he dropped that artist. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, now, you know, do me uh, explain to me and my listeners the difference between mixer, remixer, and producer. Because like producer in music, I know in, you know, because I deal with a lot of, I know a lot of writers for TV shows. You know, a producer is basically just a writer. An executive producer, co-producer is just a title because they don't want to call him a writer anymore. Producers in movies put the stuff together. They get the stars. They get the funds. They get that. What is a producer's exact job, if you could sum it up, in the music world? You know, producer is a wide range of things. A producer could be just uh, supervising the recording of an artist. Again, I'm an anomaly. 
because I'm a writer, producer, arranger, and mixer. And what I do is if I work with an artist or band, I listen to the demos. I would take apart their songs, find the strengths and weaknesses. And if I felt lyrically, again, when I work with an artist, I say, what, what audience are you trying to attract? And if they tell me it's like 15 to 24, I'm going to write that audience. They say it's all over the board, fine. So I'll take the lyrics, I'll probably rewrite them if need be. Again, I don't like to redo something if it's working. If it's not working, I have to redo it. So when I get together with ours, I sit down with the songs, rearrange them. If I need to rewrite them, key changes or whatever. I mean, here's a good example. When I work a blues driver, they had a 25-minute ballad jam called Runaround. It was a ballad. And I said to myself, you know what? I think there's a song here, but it's way too slow. So I picked up the tempo on the song, uh, reworked the song with John Papa. I said, let's make an up tempo, and I had to change the key. And again, I don't normally like to change keys with ours because I like them to sing in their comfort key. And the key I changed it to was not exactly a comfortable key for John. And uh, But I felt it was the right key for him to sing it. And I remember we wound up redoing the whole song for the tempo number of everything like that. We tracked the song with a guide vocal. And so when I went to do the real vocals with John, John just couldn't get. So I wound up stopping that a day. I came back the next day and said, John, I'll make a deal with you. John Lottie. If you get the song <laughs> in one take, I'll take you and your band to Peter Lucas in Brooklyn, which is like the right. probably the best steakhouse <laughs> in the world. And if you sing this in one take, I will take you in the band. Piece of shit, got it in one take. Probably cost you about 2000 that night, but it was probably the, the best two grand I've ever spent in my life. Because he got it. <laughs> you know, it, it's, you know, I can't talk about other producers. Some producers are engineers who think they are producers, but they're just all about engineering a song. To me, as a producer... I have to oversee every aspect of the recording and writing of the song because my goal is to take an artist or a band, whatever genre they're in, find out what my competition is and better it. That's my goal. And again, thank God I'm still 16 years old at heart. I understand today's lyrics, understand what today's kids like. And I'm not about to go back to the 80s, okay? It's okay to have influences, but, you know, that's not what I do. I'm now, all about music today and tomorrow. Now, how do you still keep in tune? I mean, what would you say? Is it just, do you, do you have an ear on the street? Or, I mean, how do you keep in tune to what people listen to? Because for me, you know, my fiancé listens to serious. We listen to completely different music. Even though she loves classic rock and the new wave that I all love, She's moved on. I'm still somewhat back in the 80s, 90s, and classic. But how do you get the feel of what people want? Is it just something that you... It's, is it instinct? Or is it just a learned... No, I, again, I think this comes back to my DJ background. I never wanted to be the bandwagon. I, I mean, I never wanted to follow the bandwagon. I, w I was always the bandwagon. And it was my job to look six to eight months into the future. And that's how I work on music. I mean... I go to clubs, I see artists, I go on YouTube. I see, I, I do so much research to see everything out there. A great example, I wrote uh, three songs, and my ex-manager, Doug Goldstein, and manager Guns N' Roses, and 
one was called Revolution, one was called uh, Deleted, and I said, I'm looking for a young band to record these songs. So he just suggested this band called Bliss Union from Prague, and they were great. They're young, affable, and I wound up writing these three songs, which basically married EDM with rock successfully, because, you know, it's okay, because, you know, you have the retro thing, you have, like, the struts trying to replicate Queen, you have uh, uh, the, the Zeppelin band, or whatever you want to call them, I forgot what they called. Uh, um, um, yeah, I can't think of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I just, I heard, uh, I heard, I heard him on the radio yesterday, uh, Greta Van Fleet. Yeah, Greta Van Zeppelin. Yeah. My friend Jason Flom signed them, and I think they're very talented, obviously. You know, so now, and then Bruno Mars just did a song with uh, Ed Sheridan, that's rock. So I think, you know, Bruno to me is probably the most talented pop artist out there. I think he's following Michael Jackson through when Michael Jackson studying rock to his repertoire. That's a decent song, Eric, like that. I noticed they had like 10 or 20 writers and this and that. And, and that's what I find the problem in music today. You don't need 50 million writers and producers and this and that to do it across. I mean, I have no problem with writing, whether it be Bruno Mars whether it be the struts, whether it be 21 pilots, I could do everything with the artists and make the best record ever. That's what I do because I do my homework. But it's very sad because you have a lot of insecure people that operate the music industry that said, well, I threw that. I put Max Martin on there, so I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm good. You know, instead of, I remember when Lady Gaga did a record probably about four to six years ago, and it was on Interscope, Jimmy Iveen. They probably spent about 25 or 30 million promoting this record. I listened to the record. And I said, Are you kidding me? This wouldn't have got out of demo stage of me. Why would you do that? And the problem today is with ears in the music industry. Ears today in the music industry is going on YouTube and where there's the most hits. I mean, somebody could take a shit on a toilet on YouTube and get 50 million hits and <laughs> find them. And I hate to say that, but so, you know, the problem with the music industry, they got rid of all the creative people who actually you know, can make the right music and have done this and, you know, you're dealing with bored people. I'm saying to myself, what are you people thinking? In every successful business, the way you are successful is you have creative people in the creative departments. But the problem is the accounts, lawyers, and suits have taken over this business or have absolutely no clue what's going on. They sell things short. You know, they have streaming, which, you know, they basically... Uh, pimped out music which is disgusting and once you alleviate the um, and this happens in, at Hollywood too once you alleviate budgets you're going to make crap and you're happy with crap I'd rather make timeless contemporary music I mean the stuff I make still selling tape 30-40 years ago well it's funny it's funny you say that about making crap because I've talked that with with some actor friends you know a lot of the actors back in the day you know they went to school for acting they have their chops they did summer stock they did that and then they come to Hollywood and you get in a movie and you have to nail your takes well now you don't need to nail your takes you can just be someone really good looking who can suck as an actor, but the way cutting and editing now is, they don't have to deliver, they don't have to remember the whole script, and it seems like you're saying that's what's happening in the music, too. Well, I just read a movie called Souls that's going to be huge, and I know the whole Hollywood thing. 
And here's the problem with Hollywood. Most directors and producers feel they need to do 5,000 takes on a scene when probably one take one, two, or three is the right take, but they don't have a clue what is good and bad. And I'm not going back to the Ed Wood days when take one, two is the shit. But, you know, that's the problem. You know, to me, you have to have a vision. You have to know what you're doing. I like, like, I'm in the studio. I know what a good vocal take is. I know what a good band take is. I don't need, you know, to me, in the studio, my big thing is doing great pre-production. Once you go in the studio, you're going to nail take one, two, or three. You go past that. You're going to homogenize the song. You're going to take the whole spirit out of the song, and that's just not right. So doing your right prep work, to me, is crucial. And, you know, today's uh, modern producers and engineers have a problem. They feel they have to look at a Pro tool screen. If a note is off on a vocal, they have to auto-tune it. And, again, I love auto-tune because I think auto-tune today can add a flavor to a vocalist, but it should not be the lead vocal the performance of vocal, except for in the sake of like people like Kanye who should never even get near a microphone. But, um, you know, that's the whole thing. It, it, it's having a vision. It's knowing what you're doing. And that's what bothers me about a lot of music. And again, there's a lot of great music out there. There's a lot of great bands out there that are not getting hurt. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of great things out there. But the, the, a lot of people who make the music today are absolutely clueless. I hate to say it. Well, I think that's I think that's across the board. I mean, you know, I have the background back in the late '80s, early '90s. I was a stand-up comic. I worked the road, and you know, I've noticed the trend now. Like you said about the girl taking a crap and she's singing, sitting on a toilet, and it gets you know so many hits. Well, a lot of things that happen now is that these comedy clubs bring on someone who they saw on YouTube who doesn't really do comedy, but they have a big following, and they think they're going to sell the the club out. But they get on stage, and after seven minutes, they suck, and then it just it waters down the whole stand-up comedy business. Well, the problem with comedy today is PC. You look at Seinfeld. You know, I grew up on, on Richard Pryor, George Carlton, uh, uh, Rodney Dangerfield, Eddie Murphy. I mean, I get uh, uh, Robin Williams. You can't do that comedy today because our, our society is fucked. Excuse the expression. But they're so PC. I said, you know what? Treat comedy as escapism and don't take it personally, okay? If people talk racist jokes, I mean, you can look at Richard Pryor. I mean, it's the king, Red Fox, and all these ours. I mean, you can even look at Dean Martin's celebrity roast and look at them. And you cringe today and say, oh, my God, he said that about a black person? Now, understand, I grew up in New York. Race was never an issue in my family because of the way I was brought up. My parents weren't racist, and they said, Steve, we don't care who you bring home. As long as they agree, we don't care what color, ethnic, background, religious, gender, whatever. Is it good people or good people? And so I grew up, so I've never personally understood racism because I think it's a joke that anybody who's a racist should not be on this planet. And you can't judge a person on their ethnicity or skin color. That's just wrong. That makes you a shallow piece of shit person. But, you know, with that said, that we were in a day and age with social media dictating how people should feel. And whether you're pro-Trump or against Trump, again, I'm not saying I'm pro or against and everything like that, but Trump is my president. I have to deal with it. Obama was my president. I dealt with it. Bush was my president. I dealt with it. I mean, Nixon was my president. It was a piece of shit, but I don't even go there. <laughs> but, you know, 
you know, we have to deal with it, and we have to make the situation great. I mean, I look at Congress, and I'm saying to myself, you idiots are there to work for the American people. Get off your poly, party politics stand and do your job. If you can't do their job, get the hell out of there. And again, if you hate somebody, work with somebody, because guess what? You have to deal with it until somebody's in beach. You have to deal with this. What does it take that you have to stand on a pedal and say, oh, he's a piece of shit, this and that? <clears throat> work with the person, okay? We need to work for the world. Now, don't get me started on this stuff. It, it just drives me crazy. It, it, it drives me crazy, too, because, I mean, I'm, I know a lot of people from both sides. But i got to ask you about the PC thing. Now, you said about the PC. Do you think that's going over to the music world, too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it just, I mean, you have to understand, you know, you look at Hollywood, uh, uh, again, they, they're as left of center as possible. No, no disrespect. Again, I'm an independent. I've always been an independent. You know, my, my philosophy is common sense. I don't look at the left or right, what's right. I look at what's right is right. And, 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 and people should need to do that. You know, get off media, get off the internet, because uh, they're going to value. You know, they basically have you know from CNN to Fox News, they have their agenda. You can't believe what they're saying. You know, formulate opinion outside of that and see what that person is doing before you make a decision. That's me. I do my homework, but I guess I'm an anomaly because I, I side with no party. Well, I'm I'm pretty much the same way. I mean, I, I look at it. I look right down the middle, and there's certain things I like and certain things I don't. And that's yeah. just the way you have to be because, you know, my girlfriend is my fiance, not my girlfriend. My fiance is very, is very liberal. Her boss is a good friend of mine. He's very conservative, but I'm right in the middle, but they get along. That's the one thing that bothers me now is people hate each other. And I'm like, just because someone's political view is this, it, it doesn't mean they're an awful person. Hey, I got liberal, liberal aspects and I have conservative aspects. I don't look at it as liberal or conservative again I, I, I evaluate what everybody's going to that's, that's all I'm saying you know what I see on social media makes me want to vomit because they will listen to what people are feeding them instead of evaluating what people are feeding them and making the right decision and I, I just like you know Joanne and I we've been together since 82 you know she was an actress and model we pray every day and we, we do this every day when, when I'm home. And, and and we want the best for the world. And the one thing I do like about Trump, he doesn't want to do start a war. And I love that. Because I think war is the most stupidest thing we could ever do as, as a world. We, we have better things to fight than that. I mean, Trump has a potty mouth. I will agree. He's probably a womanizer. I have to agree. I knew him very well when he owned the Plaza Hotel. We used to go to Clyde Davis Grammy parties at Trump's Plaza. I mean, I never saw the side of him. Obviously, he has the biggest ego in the world. Personally, I don't give a shit. As long as somebody gets stuff done, okay? And he's bucking the system, which I have no problem with, because I think Congress is, is a waste of time. They play party politics, and they're not doing their job. And we're paying these assholes in Congress a lot of money, they get the best health benefits in the world. God knows how much money they're getting on the under under the table from special interest groups. You know, and, and it bothers me. I said, you know what? You don't like somebody? Great. 
you know what? Work with that person. Make things better. To say if this guy's a piece of shit, I can't work with him. That's not an excuse. If I did that in my job, I wouldn't have a job. Now, now you you mentioned ego. Is there is there as a producer? How do you deal with ego when you go into the studio? I don't. Um, I've worked with a lot of artists. And Mick Jagger on down. Mick came in with an ego, and I settled him down. I'm, I work a lot of famous people, and you know the thing is that the beauty is when I'm in the studio, I'm the boss, and my job is to get the best out of artists and make them overachieve. And um, people tend to think my ego, but my ego is being confident in what I do. And I'm going to take you to the best path, path to get where you need to go. You know, like I said, I want to blow away the kind. You know, if you're a band that sounds like they're the new Beyonce, I'm going to make them better than that. That's my job. That's how I, I achieve. I am not into being mediocre. I'm not into following a trend. I'm into setting a trend. That's what I do. You know, I have never had a problem. I mean, I remember working with John Lennon after he died and had to work with Yoko. And it wasn't easy, but she probably gave me the biggest lesson in life is having to deal on that that level. And, you know, I came away with flying colors. But, you know, it's, you know, music today... It's very exciting because what I like about it is it can hit on all genres, and I love that. And, you know, lyrically and songwriting, it's obviously different than when the Beatles wrote She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. I mean, that was probably one of the biggest songs in the world, but if you wrote a song like that today, people would laugh at you. (laughs) But you have to take it in context. You know, my thing which, which drives me is, again, I've said this before, that it's important to know when I work in ours what audience are we trying to attract. Once we determine that age group, I'm going to write to that age group. At the same time, let it relate to even older people or younger people. It's fine. That's very easy for me to do. How many times I've taken apart a song where I felt they had a good idea but didn't really express it lyrically right. And we wind up rewriting it together. And again, it's not something I love to do, but it's something I need to do because of my job. Now, in your job, you also do mixing. What what exactly is a mixer? How would you describe that? Well, a mixer basically is, is you get a song from an artist, and it's like mixing a salad. It's making it sound great, adding dynamics in, getting the, the gist of a song, and just making it sound amazing. You know, you know, with most bands, they could have, you know, with Pro Tools, they could be like 200 tracks of one song. So basically what I like to do is I like to put each instrument in their own airspace so they're not conflicting, like bass is not conflicting with guitar, <clears throat> keyboards are not conflicting with guitar, this and that. Making it sound big, huge, and dynamic. There's a big difference being a producer or an arranger or writer or mixer. So I basically, you know, when I work with artists that just send me stuff to mix, they'll they'll send me what they did, and at the end of the day, I want to make sure what they send me sounds like a demo after I'm done with it. Now, with the mixing, like with, let's say, Guns N' Roses, 
were they in the studio when you were doing the mixing, or how does that work? Does a band have a say on what yeah, happens? Yeah, Axel Slash and Izzy were at the studio in New York. We did. I was originally supposed to produce this, but the problem being is um, I wanted to produce it, and we were involved with doing Tesla's first album and a bunch of other projects. We didn't have time to do it in the time frame they wanted to do it. So I told the company, I said, listen, I really love this band. I wish you could wait, but if you can't wait, when the album's produced, we'll mix it for you. So that's what happened. So Tom Sutet, who was the A&R guy, flew in um, Axel, Izzy, and Slash to our studio in New York. And that's we wound up mixing it, which, by the way, was done all manually, no computer, no Pro Tools, it was just tape and, and console. Now, the Grammys. I want to talk about the Grammys. You've won seven. When, what was your first Grammy? Oh, God. That's a good question. I can name you the Grammys I did. Cutting Crew, uh, Metallica, One for One. I can't believe Guns N' Roses' Appetite didn't win anything. That blew me away. I won one for Rita Franklin, George Michael, Whitney Houston. I want to dance with somebody. Uh, Corn, follow the leader. Um, what am I missing? Paul Simon. I worked on the Graceland album. Um, there's a bunch that I, I, I felt should have won. Like I felt Public Enemy after I should have won a Grammy. Guns N' Roses should have won a Grammy. Uh, Metallica should have won Metal Album of the Year, but Jethro Tull won. I mean, you know the story on that. I don't have to reiterate that which was a joke. Uh, but we won a Grammy for the best video. Um, oh, Ziggy Marley uh, won best reggae album of the year. Blues Traveler, Run Around, won best rock song of the year. I think I got everything, didn't I? Yeah, I'm on your website, yeah. Now, now with the Grammys, though, I mean, was there a charge for the first one? And does it lose a little bit after a while? Because you've won so many. It's not like, you know, when you do your first one, I'm sure it was an amazing feeling. But after a while, does it get a little, not, I don't want to say monotonous, but it does get a little, like, old. Oh, not at all. I mean, when you're recognized by your peers that you're doing great work, it never gets old. It's like um, when, when a baseball player wins an MVP, you think they... They want to win more than one or, or, you know, it never gets old, you know. I think the beauty about what I do is <clears throat> my first love is when I work on something that the people around the world love. I mean, you know, when I can hear something I worked on, go on the radio or go to a show and see the band perform it through 70,000 people. I remember, you know, with Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses, I go to a football game. They're playing that on kickoff. I mean, you don't think I get a rush on that? That That is so cool. It never gets old. And again, do I live for Grammys? No. I live for making great music and, and trying to get as many artists I can to see their vision and to be able to succeed. That is my thing. I know it sounds stupid and cliche, but nothing gets me off more when I see an artist I work with hit the world stage. I mean, I just love that. Now, you mentioned earlier, you know, we're DJ when you're younger. 
the worlds of DJs have changed a lot. What have you seen to change in it? And what do you think? Why do you think that happened? Well, again, I started DJing in the early 70s. I got to work in amazing clubs. I did guest spots at the Paradise Garage Studio 54, which was a joke. I worked in the best clubs in Long Island. I worked on the best radios, radio stations in New York from BLS Kiss and KTU. I used to do special shows. And I remember going to the Ultra Music Festival probably about five or six years ago when I see seen DJs like Skrillex, Carl Cox, Deadmau, and all these performing in front of 16,000 people and I got goosebumps. You know why? When you can go to a show like that and see the energy of so many people getting off of that, I, I got goosebumps. You know, I remember seeing Pink Floyd in the 70s used laser shows, blew me away, or Prince blew me away. When I went to these uh, uh, ultra festivals, electric uh, carnival festivals, I mean, they got it down. I mean, it, it, it's just a great feeling. And the thing that changed, obviously, when I was a DJ, I would work at four turntables with speed controls. Now DJs will do their program on uh, 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 on a USB stick. They use um, sequences like tractor or whatever. So it's almost kind of self-mix. And a lot of music today, if the song is 132 BPMs, it's going to stay that way. Back in the day, a song could start at 160, 116 and go to 126. You had to manipulate your speed control while mixing two songs together. Where today, it's just a lot easier. And, you know, John just to me, I mean, obviously, today's electronic dance music is basically um, house music, a little modern, which house music started in the early 80s in Chicago and New York. Uh, we, we can go into that. So it's, it's a lot different. But uh, And DJ's responsibility is to mess with, with buttons on the, on the, on the uh, mixer, which does nothing, and put their hands in the air. When I had to do it, I had to work at four turntables and just keep going. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, now we, we talked about mixing. Now, what is technically what is re when you're a remixer? Because I just said, as you, you know, if you look at your resume, I mean, it is so. You even have a Kaja Gugu in there. I mean, which you know, a lot of people don't even know who Kaja Gugu is anymore. But we all knew Too Shy to Shy back when it came out. But what is what does a remixer do? What, do you come in? Well, give you an, a couple of uh, references. I remember when I did Talk Talk, It's My Life. Basically with that song, I got the, the album version and I wanted to extend it to make it more exciting. And after a while with remixing, I wound up bringing musicians in to enhance what was already there production-wise to make it more interesting. So when you take a uh, I remember when I worked at Talk Talk, I did It's My Life. It became number one around the world. And I remember the band came up to me and said, Steve, with all due respect, we didn't like this mix. I, goes, I go, why? Because it wasn't experimental enough. I said, but it went number one everywhere. I said, we can get that. So I remember doing the second song, Such a Shame, brought musicians in and just totally re-enhanced the whole production and took it to a new level and made love that. But at the same time, it was important to get a band, an unknown band like Talk Talk out there. You know, with Aretha Franklin, George Michael, I brought musicians in to really basically beef up the original production and make it interesting where it could be more than a three-minute song. And, and that's what basically a remix is, you know, for dance-wise. 
if it's a remix for an album, like when I did Psychedelic Furs, you know, Heartbreak Beat and everything, I could bring some musicians in. But otherwise, I would just make it sonically sound better than the original mixes and maybe uh, retweak the arrangement as well. Now, i got to ask you, on your Facebook page, and I watched it, you had a trailer for a, a TV show that was supposed to happen with uh, Tracy Guns, I believe. Whatever oh, happened God. about that, and how did that come about? This guy, Johnny B, was an entrepreneur from Toronto, very, had a lot of money, and wanted to work with me because he liked music, so he wound up building a studio for me in Toronto, which is amazing on a lake. So we decided to work together, it was three artists I did, which was Tracy Guns and, and, and Marty Casey, uh, which wound up becoming uh, Sugarbush, the band, and then I worked with that artist Snow, and I worked with Pat Travers. So, uh, dysfunctional as Sugarbush Tracy Guns band, it was kind of like interesting that, you know, we set up a trailer and video to promote the album in a reality TV show, which never really hit off. But there was a lot of drama. I remember at times we had storms up there that blew out my speakers. So I'm mixing without a speaker. It was tough to do. Now, what do you look for a band in now? Is there any bands you're working with? I know you the one band from Prague, but is there any bands that you're starting to work with that you think are going to make it? And is there any bands that you've worked with that you thought would have made it, but they didn't? I'm always looking for new artists, you know, because the whole thing that what I can do, most people can't do, is have a vision and get them where they need to go. I just think there's too many people who do it for paycheck. And are absolutely cool is how to take that artist to the next level. That's what I do. Every artist I work with, I treat it like it's the last project I'm ever going to do. And hell, I'm going to make a name for them. That's my goal. You know, like I said, I'd love to work with the Struts. I'd love to work with 21 Pilots. I, I would love to work with Taylor Swift, Keith Urban. I could do all genres. You know, the whole thing is that when I work with artists, I make sure they make their best record ever. And I've proven that my whole life. And that's, that's my goal. I don't take things for granted, and and I I guarantee you when somebody works with me, they're going to be very proud of what they've done, and they're going to say, God, I can't believe I did that. That's now, my goal. Now, do you take it personally if a song doesn't do as well or, or gets panned by the critics? Do you take that personally because... You're the guy. Who... I, I, I can give two shits about critics. Critics don't buy records. Uh, there was a, a magazine called NME. I called it No Musical Experience. <laughs> um, I don't care about critics. You know, my bottom line is I want to make music that touch people. That's all I care about. I could care less about critics. I want to make sure that when I make something, that the masses. And again, when I make something, I make it for the world. I don't make it just for one country. You know, uh, I have experience where I want to make it for the world. I remember when I worked on Duran Duran, A View to a Kill. We did that in, in uh, Paris. And when I heard that song, I got a big James Bond freak. To be associated with the James Bond picture was, blew me away. And, you know, that's my goal. You know, I think you have to be a visionary. You have to understand what the climate is today, and you have to understand how can you make your artist stand out from everybody else. I will say this until I drop that's my goal. 
I don't take things for granted. I don't rest on laurels. And thank God I still have the hunger today that I did, you know, years ago. Well, in your career, because it's been very long and you've won a lot and it's been very successful, have you ever gone into the studio or worked with someone that you were somewhat in awe of or intimidated by? Well, I was in awe of working with the Stones and Jagger, but I wasn't intimidated. Thank God I had a set of balls. Um, I was in awe of working with John Lennon, even though he died a year or two before that. But, you know, to work with certain artists, so with Aretha Franklin, with Earth, Wind, and Fire, I mean, these are artists I grew up, you know, just idolizing. But, you know, when I'm in the studio, I'm at the, it, 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 it's like when somebody goes on stage, you know, a lot of artists will say that, and then when I work a journey, a lot of artists have stage fright until they get on the stage and perform, and then they're good. And that's the way I am. I, I don't look at it that way, you know, because I feel... I can add to what they do. If I can't add to what they do, I won't do it. Simple as that. I'm not into that. You know, if I can make them better, I'll work with them. If I can't, pass next. Now, do you have any bands lined up right now? We're looking at about four or five. I'm always open. If people want to search me out, they go to my website. Send me uh, on my website, stevethompsonproductions.com. There's a little filler in there. And again, I don't work for free, so you better have a budget. I don't respond. But I look at everything. And like I said, I love everything from EDM, dance, music, pop, rock, country, hip-hop. You know, I've done it all. And I, I love working on all different genres. And I know I could do better than anybody else. Now, now as a music lover, because I'm also a fellow music lover, what is your take, because you're in the business, what is your take on the fact that when we were younger, an album was a special thing. You know, you went out, you bought it, you looked at the artwork. When there was notes, when there was lyrics inside, you were so happy. And two songs sucked. You were so sad. As a person in the business, what does it do to you when it doesn't seem like there's a concentration on albums anymore? Well, it's the way the music industry has geared people to believe in again. Uh, I don't look behind. If that's where it's got to be today, fine. I mean, you know, what I prefer to see album artwork, and I, I know that a lot of the online sites are starting to do that and who worked on this and that. That's great, but I, 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 I refuse to say, you know, the way I brought it up is better than what it is today. It's irrelevant. You know, it is what it is. You know, my concentration is the music I work on. Let it stand out and let it live on the music I'm working on. The credits, the album artwork is irrelevant today. we got to wrap up soon. I have a, another question for you, though. Your three favorite pieces of sport memorabilia that you have. Oh, God, I got so many. I got a Muhammad Ali signed picture from when he was at the Golden Gloves. I have a Michael Jordan signed basketball. I have a 1969 World Series Met Ball signed. I have a Tiger Woods, Owner Palmer, Jack Nicholas signed Master Flag. I mean, so many. I have a Michael Jackson signed Off the Wall album cover. I mean, I, I have like about 100 baseballs that have everyone uh, on there. It's really hard to pick them out. I have a John Lennon signed Mind Games single. I have a... Uh, was a guy who did Bugs Bunny? What's his name? Mel Blanc. Uh, Mel Blanc. 
you know, Mel Blanc signed pitcher. I have a boat, uh, a couple of Bowie signed pitchers. I remember when I was hanging out, Mick Rock who did all the Bowie artwork, gave me a collage of very special pitchers, and he signed them. And I sent one to, I, I was working in the studio. Bowie came in, it was during the pinups day, and he saw this picture. He goes, I don't remember that. Can I have it? I said, No, you can't have it. Go ask Mick, sign the damn thing. So David signed it for me. I have so much. I mean, I'm still a kid. If you saw all the memorabilia stuff I have, I mean, I have a lot of toys. I have a signed Detective Comics by the guy that did Detective Comics. I have uh, uh, the guy who did Spider-Man. I, I, it was funny. I have a, I had a choice to return the Jedi soundtrack of Flashdance. I, I chose Return to Jedi even though it was... It was a piece of shit song, but I got the album artwork where my name was on it, so it was cool. I, I knew it immediately. Now, now, what do you do with your, where are your Grammys? They're all over the place. I have them in my house. Some are in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and how many gold records do you have that are in uh, the house? Uh, countless. I have no clues. A lot of them are packed up as well. You know, I sold probably about 350 million units and counting. And that, you know, and we have to count streaming and downloads and everything like that. I don't really look at that, you know. it's To me, what I've done the best is in the past, and I don't look at that. I'm all about now and the future. That's all I look at because I love making music. And uh, any band artists out there that have a desire to be serious and make it down the music industry, feel free to hit me up. I want to thank I want to thank you for taking time today, Steve. Uh, people remember it's stevethompsonproductions.com. Check them out. Go on there. You'll just be you'll be amazed if you when you click on discography. I can't even say it right discography. I it's, I hate when I can't say a word. But if you click on that, you're gonna be like, holy crap, because it's nine pages. So get your reading glasses on. So please go check Steve out. Uh, check me. Check my website out, people. It's coopertalk.net. I have over uh, 730 episodes. You can also email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. On Twitter, it's at coopertalk. And Instagram is CooperTalk1. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, and take your vitamins. And I'll talk to you guys next time.